The Supreme Court had its say on Roe, but now whole new battles are brewing. The lead starts right now. In the streets, in courtrooms, and legislative chambers nationwide, new actions as abortion rights wade into a new post-Roe era. From peaceful demonstrations to some scuffles to vandals also trying to inflame the debate. Plus, a CNN exclusive one-on-one with Vice President Kamala Harris. Her take as such a pivotal decision divides the nation. And the cost of living, a closer look at sky-high rent prices and the crippling effect on so many people just trying to get by. Welcome to Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we start today with our politics lead and fallout from the monumental Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Today, a portrait of an increasingly divided America. At least 10 states now have effectively banned abortion with varying exceptions or none at all. Another handful of states are expected to enact bans in the coming days and weeks. Meanwhile, abortion rights activists are launching new legal challenges on the state level, while Democratic governors are promising to expand abortion access and protect people who travel there for care. A fourth day of protests is planned in cities across the country today after a weekend of marches, rallies, and at times, violent demonstrations. In moments, you'll hear from Vice President Kamala Harris, who just sat down with CNN for her first interview since the Supreme Court decision. And we start with CNN's Nadia Romero in a closer look at how these changes are already affecting women and girls across the country. Chaos and confusion after Friday's Supreme Court ruling, allowing states to immediately begin to set their own abortion policy, leaving women across the country with varying levels of access. At least 10 states have effectively banned abortion. They're among 26 states, which were certain or likely to ban abortion once Roe was overturned, according to the Guttmacher Institute. That includes Mississippi, where this morning the state's attorney general certified a trigger law. It goes into effect in 10 days and prohibits abortion with few exceptions. The task now falls to us to advocate for the laws that empower women, laws that promote fairness in child support and enhance enforcement of it. The decision prompting Mississippi to take a hard look at its current laws to protect women and kids. It ranks 50th, dead last, for overall child well-being based on several factors including health and education. It has been surprising to me, actually, to hear uh, the leadership, the governor, the speaker, the lieutenant governor, talking about what they're going to do for women's health when they won't even expand Medicaid, which would give women health care in this state. A trigger ban in Texas will go into effect 30 days after Friday's ruling. But the state's attorney general already announced that local prosecutors can begin enforcing a six-week ban passed last year before Roe was overturned. Providers in Oklahoma, which has implemented a trigger ban, say they're worried about the resources for underprivileged women. We gave resources to all of the patients with other clinics' uh, names and phone numbers out of state, um, as well as resources that could help pay for the abortion and help pay for travel to get to those states. In other states, things are less clear-cut. In Michigan, the governor filed a motion urging the state Supreme Court to review a lawsuit to protect abortion rights. A 1931 law in the books there would ban abortion without exceptions for rape and incest. There is a lot of confusion about what this means for IVF, for practitioners. And an appeals court is set to rule on Georgia's fetal heartbeat law, which would ban abortion about six weeks into a pregnancy. That is horrendous. 
That is appalling and it is wrong. And as the next governor, I'm going to do everything in my power to reverse it. Meanwhile, some Republican governors are signaling they'll take action to block access to FDA-approved abortion pills. In South Dakota, we've already had a bill passed mm-hmm. that said on telemedicine abortions that we don't believe it should be available uh, because it is a dangerous situation for those individuals. Just this afternoon, a Louisiana judge blocked the state's trigger laws on abortion. A lawsuit filed argued that those trigger laws were unconstitutionally vague. Now there's a temporary restraining order until a hearing that's set for July 8th. Back here in Mississippi, the state's last abortion clinic, the pink house behind me, will open its doors again tomorrow, but it will have less than 10 days before the director says they'll shut down for good. Pamela? All right, Nadia Romero, thank you so much. And there are renewed questions today about what the Supreme Court decision means for contraception and abortion pills that can be delivered by mail. And also about whether states that ban abortion will try to punish women who leave the state for care. CNN's Alexander Field is in Missouri, where abortion has already been banned and state Republicans are looking to target what they call abortion tourism. In at least 10 states now, women with almost no access to abortion care left scrambling. It's what women in Missouri have done for years. Fleeing across state lines from a state with almost no abortion access to Illinois for care. The single abortion clinic left in St. Louis is no longer performing procedures. Now advocates in one of the staunchest anti-abortion states in the nation are poised to make access to abortion even harder. It's hard to state what a victory this is for the pro-life movement. Mary Elizabeth Coleman is a Republican state representative who helped draft the trigger law that effectively banned abortion in Missouri within just moments of the Supreme Court's ruling. Her top legislative priority, making sure access to abortion in Missouri can never come back. We have to make sure through a um, ballot initiative or a referendum for a constitutional change to make sure that there is no way to find a right to abortion in our state constitution. Coleman also leaves the door open for the state legislature to consider new limits to what she calls abortion tourism. Previous proposals have failed to gain traction. What does that look like, potentially? There's a definition about if you're aiding or abetting violating the laws of the state of Missouri, um, that you would be able to have some kind of Texas-style enforcement so that there would be civil penalties for doing so. Coleman says the abortion ban already outlaws medication abortion. Some abortion rights opponents say the state should crack down more on the importation of FDA-approved pills. The battle's not over. The battleground has changed. A group of St. Louis's older women say they're ready to fight for abortion rights, introducing a bill on the day the decision came down to use COVID relief funds to provide abortion support, including for travel. This bill will provide a million dollars in funding to access abortions, so it could be lodging, transportation, meals, childcare, things of that nature. As the desert of care dries up, St. Louis's Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush says solutions could come from new frontiers, like using federal lands for abortion clinics, expanding existing clinics and trying to find federal dollars to support women in need. Right now, it it seems like all, for some, it seems like all is lost. It's just more difficult. Alexandra Field, CNN, St. Louis, Missouri. And our thanks, Alexandra, for that report. And turning now to a CNN exclusive and Vice President Kamala Harris's first interview since the Supreme Court 
overturned Roe versus Wade. CNN's Dana Bash just got back from speaking with the vice president. So, Dana, what did she have to say? Well, one of the most important questions that everybody who I've talked to has is what can the executive branch do? What can the president and she do in the short term? And then the other question, given her historic role, is her personal reaction. Madam Vice President, thank you so much for uh, having me here. You were on a plane when the Supreme Court overturned yeah, Roe versus Wade. As the highest ranking woman yeah. ever elected in U.S. history, what was going through your mind at that moment? Well, so I was on Air Force Two heading to Aurora, Illinois to talk about maternal health. We were um, with Lauren Underwood, with, with the chair of judiciary, Dick Durbin, Senate Judiciary. We were headed there to unveil a plan of, based on the work we've been doing to ensure that women receive the kind of support they need during and post-pregnancy. And, um, you know, we thought that the decision would come down sometime soon, but not at that moment. And I was shocked. And, um, you know, it's one thing when you know something's going to happen. It's another thing when it actually happens. And I just actually turned to CNN. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Because um, they actually did it. And, and here's what they did. They, the court actually took a constitutional right that has been recognized for half a century and took it from the women of America. That's shocking when you think about it in terms of what that means in terms of democratic principles in terms of the ideals upon which we were founded about liberty about freedom um, you know I thought about it as you know a parent we have two children who are in their 20s a son and a daughter I thought about it as a godparent of teenagers I thought of it as an aunt of, of, of preschool children. And a woman yourself. And a woman myself. And the daughter of a woman. And a granddaughter of a woman. And, you know, my husband and I are actually talking about it. We have a 23-year-old, and my mother-in-law's in her 80s. Our daughter will not know the rights for the, court, for the amount of time that my mother-in-law knew these rights, which is the right that, that should be well settled, that a woman should have to make decisions about her own body. And when we think about it, everyone has something at risk on this. First of all, if you are a parent of sons, do think about what this means for the life of your son and what that will mean in terms of the choices he will have. Do think about it in the context of the fact that they, they wrote this decision, including you know, concurring opinions, that suggests that other rights, such as the freedom to make decisions about when you were going to start a family, the freedom and the right to make decisions about contraception, IUDs, um, what this is going to mean in terms of in vitro fertilization. Well, let me ask you about that, because yeah. Justice Thomas, this is what you're referring to, did right. write a concurring opinion saying the court should reconsider other cases uh, of precedent that protect same-sex marriage, contraception, uh, intimacy, right. and more. Do right. you think that the Supreme Court is on a path to reverse those as well? I definitely believe this is not over. I do. 
I think he just said the quiet part out loud. And I think that is why we all must really understand the significance of what just happened. This is profound. And, and, and the way that this decision has come down has been so driven, I think, by the politics of the issue versus what should be the values that we place on, on freedom and liberty in our country, right? The right to privacy. Um, let's think of this in the context of the laws that are being passed in states. Dana, in 13 states, by my count, they will not allow a woman to have access to reproductive health and to an abortion if she is the victim of rape or incest. So let me tell you something. As a former prosecutor who specialized in crimes of violence against women and girls, in particular child sexual assault and rape, the idea that after a woman has endured such violence to her body, that she would not have the freedom and authority to decide whether she wanted to continue with a pregnancy that is a result of an act of violence is absolutely unthinkable. So be, because you are now the vice president of the United States, part of, yeah. uh, of an administration that is pledging to fight back to yeah. find ways to protect uh, women's rights to abortion, I want to ask you some of the things that are kind of out there that some of your former female uh, senators, uh, Senate colleagues, sure. are asking the administration to do. Uh, will the administration actively challenge state laws that make it a crime for someone to help a woman travel to another state for an abortion? So the president um, rightly last week when the decision came down indicated that it quite unambiguously that we will do everything within our power as an administration through the executive branch to ensure that women have access to the medication they need, um, which has been, by the way, FDA approved, and that they will have freedom of travel and that that travel should be unrestricted. And you're going to do that through the courts if need be? I am sure that, that, that our Department of Justice is going to do that based on every statement that the Attorney General has made. Can the administration expand abortion access or abortion services on federal land, meaning provide the access on federal land that might be in and around states that ban abortion? I think that what is most important right now is that we ensure that the restrictions that the states are trying to put up um, that would prohibit a woman from exercising what we still maintain is her right, that we do everything we can to empower women to not only seek but to receive the care where it is available. Is federal land uh, one of those options? I mean, it's not right now what we are discussing, but I will say that when I think about what is happening in terms of the states, we have to also recognize, Dana, that we are 130-odd days away from an election, which is going to include Senate races, right? P part of the issue here is that the court has acted, now Congress needs to act. But we, if you count the votes, don't appear to have the votes in the Senate. Well, there's an election happening. In 130 odd days, I'm taking, for example, thinking of, of a Senate race in Georgia or North Carolina. There's a the Senate race coming up just in a couple weeks in Colorado. And we need to change the balance 
and have pro-choice legislators who have the power to make decisions about whether this constitutional right will be in law, right? We say codified, mm -hmm. put it in law so that there will be no ambiguity about it. And I want to ask you about that in one second. Okay. Just a couple of more questions because what I'm hearing, and you probably are too, is what can this democratic administration do right now with any executive power that the president has? Yeah. Uh, can the administration actually increase access to medication abortion? I think we're pretty clear that to the extent that we can, we will. There's no question about that because, again, it is FDA approved, and if it is prescribed, if it, it, that, that a woman should be able to have access to it unfettered. And what about the idea of financial resources, mm -hmm. some form of voucher for travel, child care services, other forms of support for people, yeah. for women seeking abortions? in states where it's not legal, right. but they just don't have the means to go elsewhere. I think you're asking a, a very important point, making a very important point, which is what are the details that are going to go into ensuring that women have the ability to actually uh, travel um, without impairment? And we know that on this issue, women who have access to resources will probably be far less impacted by this decision than women who don't have resources. So this is something that we are looking at. Because we know, for example, in terms of how this is going to actually impact real people, over half of women who, who receive abortions in America are moms. That means that if they're going to have to travel, they've got to find daycare and pay for it. It means that they will, if they are working, which most are, they're going to have to have time from work. And if they don't have paid leave, they're going to have to figure out how to afford it. It means that they may have to put up money for a train or a bus or a plane, much less a hotel. And so we want to make sure that there does not result um, extreme disparities or any disparities based on who can receive care based on how much money they've got. And you heard her talk about the election coming up in 2022. And Pamela, I asked her what I'm hearing from a lot of Democrats, I'm sure you are as well, which is, wait a minute, we elected the Democrats for the executive branch, the president, the House, the Senate, they're all in charge. Why not try to do something now? And the way to do that, of course, would be for her to endorse getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate for this issue. The president did that for voting rights, nothing else. She wouldn't go there on mm. that, particularly was I thought was interesting because she is the president of the Senate. She said, just the votes aren't there, so I'm not going there. One other thing, and we can uh, tease this for later, uh, I asked about her predecessor, the mm. former vice president, Mike Pence, and about January 6th, and she said that she commends him for the job that he did that day. Sounds like she was um, practicing some restraint, perhaps. <laughs> All right, Dana, thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to have more of her interview with the vice president coming up next on The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. And up next here on The Lead, President Biden at the G7, the response he and other world leaders gave when Ukrainian's president said he wants his war with Russia over within the next six months. Plus, could artificial intelligence possibly prevent future mass shootings. See the technology being tested right now by a group of former Navy SEALs. In our world lead, leaders gathered for the G7 say that they will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. This pledge after Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed the group virtually, telling President Biden and other world leaders he wants the war over by the end of the year. 
CNN's Caitlin Collins is live near the summit site. So, Caitlin, this show of unity comes as Russia is making fresh gains in Ukraine. What are the G7 leaders agreeing to do? Yeah, it raises a lot of concerns because the last time these leaders met, Pam, they were so surprised by how well Ukraine was doing. Now it's kind of become this grinding conflict and they are trying to avoid that going on for too long. And so a few things that they are doing while they're here at this summit is talking about ways to make Putin pay. And the first one is one that you'll see the U.S. formally unveil yesterday. But that's an agreement by Biden and these other G7 leaders to ban imports of Russian gold. That is Russia's second top export besides energy. UK takes billions of dollars of Russian gold each year. So that is one step that they're taking. And the other one when it comes to financially hurting Putin is they are trying to come to an agreement on capping the price of Russian oil. Because, of course, a lot of these leaders have said that is what Putin is using to fund his war in Ukraine as he has been cut, up, cut off from the world in other ways economically. And so they have not come to an agreement on that yet. Simply in principle, that is what they are seeking to do. But the White House is expressing a lot of optimism that they are going to get there. So that remains to be seen. But it does come as they are having this concern, these world leaders, about managing their own economic fallout in their own countries where there are higher food prices, higher gas prices, obviously exacerbated by this banning of Russian oil and attempts to get Europe off of Russian oil. And so that is definitely something that is top of mind for these leaders. But the other thing and the appeal that they heard from the Ukrainian president today when he spoke to them virtually was the timing of all of this, because he said he wants to see this war come to an end by the end of 2022, of course, just about six months away. And he asked and pleaded with these G7 leaders to try to really maximize the next few months to put Ukraine in the best position it can be to, of course, try to defeat Russia. And some G7 leaders were heard also, Caitlin, lightly mocking Putin during a working lunch. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's obviously no secret that they do not have this chummy relationship with Putin, especially since this invasion happened. But as they were sitting down, you saw Prime Minister or British Prime Minister Boris Johnson asking the others if they were going to wear their suit jackets during the lunch. And he made this offhand remark about looking tough in front of Putin. And then you heard the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau respond, making fun of those photos that you've seen of Putin where he is shirtless, on a horse, of course, you've seen other ones where he's fishing and whatnot, these macho-type images. They were really making fun of it as they were all getting together to discuss, obviously, very serious issues that are um, every one of their countries is dealing with, but also taking some time to make fun of Putin as well, Pamela. All right. Caitlin Collins traveling with the president near the G7 summit. Thanks so much, Caitlin. And up next, what we just heard from the vice president on abortion rights. What legal options does the Biden administration have as more states look to crack down? And the politics lead a warning from the White House that Republicans are trying to, quote, strip women of their rights in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. Vice President Kamala Harris telling our own Dana Bash earlier this hour the White House is ready to fight this. We will do everything within our power as an administration through the executive branch to ensure that women have access to the medication they need, um, which has been, by the way, FDA approved and that they will have freedom of travel and that that travel should be unrestricted. And you're going to do that through the courts if need be? I am sure that, that, that our Department of Justice is going to do that based on every statement that the Attorney General has made. 
the key here, Paul, is what is in within the White House power? What can it actually do? And she made clear as the president of the Senate that getting rid of the filibuster just wasn't something that they were pursuing on this. Right. They just don't have the votes for it. There's yeah. only 48 Democrats who want to uh, limit the filibuster and you need 50 and they don't have it. They won't get it. And I understand the bully pulpit and all that. But the, the White House is not only in Washington, it's in the real world. And I think it's wise the vice president didn't pick a fight that she can't possibly win. I think that the two huge fights that they seem to be heading for are on the FDA, which has approved a pill that's safe and effective. And some states, the governor of South Dakota yesterday said she wanted to restrict mm-hmm. that. So she's going to overrule the FDA. She's going to start searching the mail, right. the women of her state, uh, the, and then the right to travel. The Constitution guarantees everybody the right of interstate travel. And all of a sudden now, states are going to say, well, you can't go here. I want to know why. I need a permission slip. I need a hall pass from you. Why are you going to California? Are you visiting your cousin? Or are you having, I mean, that, that, that's really smart ground, I think, for the vice president to be fighting. Right. One of the things I also heard the vice president say in that interview was that, that the Supreme Court has stripped the constitutional rights of women. Well, first off, um, she's the vice president. She's not a member of the, the Supreme Court. The courts ruled that this is not a constitutionally protected right. And it's not in their purview and turned it over to the states. They said that uh, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. So now it is where it should be, back in the hands of the states. I've talked to many pro-life leaders that now they realize now the, the, the war is on in terms of the effort to continue to protect the life of the unborn at the state level. They are working uh, already. Many are, are uh, going to several states, meeting with legislators, because they would like to see a national a national ban on this. But the reality is we would not have the votes in the House and the Senate to pass that. So the goal now is to win over the hearts and minds of Americans to protect the sanctity of life. There is so much confusion, though, still. I mean, with these trigger laws, which states have them, which states don't. And I pressed a Republican congressman from Ohio, Warren Davidson, last night about the the bill there in Ohio, now that the heartbeat bill, so-called heartbeat bill, which bans abortions after about six weeks uh, when there is a, a heartbeat. Um, and I asked him if he's comfortable with the idea of a 12-year-old child being raped and being forced to carry that baby to term if she becomes pregnant from the rape. And here's what he said. I, I fully support Ohio's law. I think it's a great law, and it is a compromise. And like I say, uh, rape is raised as an objection, but the heartbeat bill uh, already deals with that. I mean, anyone, I, I, it's hard to conceive of somebody who doesn't know they were raped for two months. And I went on to explain there are so many complexities when it comes to rape, and I would never want to put myself in the shoes of someone who was raped going through that, let alone a 12-year-old who may not even know she can get pregnant. That aside, um, it, it does seem like some anti-abortion Republicans are struggling with some of the, the basic moral and ethical and medical questions arising from some of these laws. These are difficult questions. This is a difficult issue. This is an emotional issue. This is a, a one that has so many nuances to this. But the reality is pro-life Republicans are going to fight and continue to fight for the sanctity of life. I happen to believe there should be exceptions in the case of rape, incest, and life of the mother. Others who are strong on uh, the pro-life issue uh, disagree with that. But this is an issue that uh, will continue to be fought by pro-life advocates uh, at the state level and working uh, across the country to make sure that, that these measures are strictly adhered to at the state level and working to expand it to the other states that currently are pro-abortion. Well, this is becoming a major issue in the midterms. Abigail Spamberger, a congresswoman from the 7th District of Virginia, a frontline member, really vulnerable Democrat, her opponent 
the state Democratic Party sent me this today. Susan Swecker, their chair, sent me this statement. Her opponent says that rape doesn't happen. It doesn't cause pregnancy very often because this is a quote from the Republican candidate. It's not something that's happening organically. You're forcing it. The individual, the man is doing it quickly, et cetera. It's just, I think, quite stunningly cruel. And certainly, I have to pick that hat off politically, I think it's unwise for candidates to go out there and pretend yeah, that rape somehow can't cause pregnancy. That's outrageous. I mean, bottom line, uh, we know plenty of women who have been raped who have been become impregnated. Uh, I want to get to another topic that just sort of surprised us today. This press release from the January 6th committee announcing a, a hearing tomorrow. It was supposed to be a couple of weeks till there was another hearing. Now there's going to be one tomorrow. Uh, the committee didn't give any details except that it will include witness testimony. Is there a danger, Paul, in overpromising and under delivering here. I mean, a surprise last minute hearing will come with high expectations. Yeah, so far, they've over delivered. I have to say, usually congressional hearings I've been to a million of them are very boring, uh, very predictable, um, clumsy, scripted, pontificating. None of that. These have been brilliant. Uh, I suspect uh, we're in the business of breaking news here. This is breaking evidence. I, I, I have no idea. I have no inside knowledge. But uh, so far, this committee has done the best job of investigating and airing the facts uh, that I've ever seen. Almost all the witnesses have been Republicans, by the way. Yeah, and I think most of the more damning uh, testimony has come from Republicans, senior officials with the, mm -hmm. the Trump administration. Uh, right now, though, I, I think it has not been good for the former president. I think we've, we've made a case that he was responsible for 9-11 uh, uh, or, or January 6th. He should not have been uh, pushing the, the election uh, lies, and this has not been good for him. But at the end of the day, it is somewhat of a Rorschach test. People are going to see and hear what they want to hear. Republicans who are pro-Trump Trump are continuing to, to stand by him, and those that want to see something wrong in this mm -hmm. are going to feel that way. And, of course, we don't know who's going to be testifying. Uh, open to hearing your thoughts on who it could be. And is there anyone that you think could actually sway the minds of those skeptical Republicans, Alice? Well, there's been talk about Pat Cipollini, whether it is uh, Alex, the, the documentary filmmaker. I think one person that has nothing to lose at this point would be Mo Brooks. Uh, he, the Alabama that ran for Senate, mm. Trump endorsed him and then took the endorsement back. He lost. Uh, I would love to hear from him. And of course, he openly said that he did ask for a pardon. And he defended that, saying, I, you know, in his words, I, I was worried I was going to, they were going to come after me, the socialist Democrats, quote unquote. Um, so that's an interesting guess. What about you, Paul? Yeah, I have no idea. I, but I want the facts coming out. What's great about this is that they're going to be under oath. Okay, politicians are allowed to lie to the press, sadly. They're not allowed to lie to Congress without going to jail. Yeah. All right. Well, we shall see you tomorrow. So much suspense. Thank you both. Thanks, Pam. Well, beyond the legal options, up next, the technology that a group of Navy veterans say might just prevent a future mass shooting. Artificial intelligence technology is the latest tool being used to combat gun violence in schools and other places. CNN's Josh Campbell takes a closer look at how it may save lives. An armed gunman approaches a high school, casing the exterior and eventually making his way inside. But before he even gets to the door... Last known location is OHS main office. Law enforcement's en route. 600 miles away, a team of security experts is already aware of the situation. Identifying the weapon and possible shooter using artificial intelligence technology, they're alerting authorities. Rob, what did we just see? So you just saw a demo of Zero Eyes in action. What we do is I started out in the parking lot, I walked around with airsoft guns, not real guns, but they have the same shape, 
and we process the video cameras frame by frame and we ask one question, is there a gun in this image? This is only a simulation, but illustrates how artificial intelligence is being used in response to a wave of mass shootings. Rob Huberty is chief operating officer of Zero Eyes, one of several emerging AI gun detection companies. He and a group of fellow former Navy SEALs are hoping to reduce the amount of time it takes law enforcement to stop a threat. We found it pretty uh, upsetting that you could look back at some of these terrible scenarios and see impending doom and not be able to do anything. We want you to know before any shots are fired. And with the added human element to their AI technology, they say they're able to provide detailed context to those responding on the ground. We have the human in the loop who's able to verify and send a verbal verification to that, you know, first responder, that main security point of contact. This simulation is taking place at Oxford High School in Michigan, one of several places piloting new gun detection technology. But of course, for the students and staff here at Oxford High, planning for a mass shooting isn't an academic exercise. Late last year, in the middle of a school day, this building became a crime scene. We are following horrible breaking news out of Michigan, yet another school shooting. The gunfire erupted this afternoon at a school just north of Detroit. The suspect fired multiple shots. There's multiple victims. Less than a year ago, a gunman shot and killed four fellow students and wounded others. The tragedy prompted additional security measures, including piloting zero-ice technology on some existing cameras throughout the campus. We knew someone bad was in the building, and we didn't exactly know where they were to find them on the cameras. Um, this particular type of technology would pinpoint their location, geolocate them, and give that information again, not only to us, but also to first responders to find that individual quickly. While early detection technology might save police precious time in responding to a threat, there are still limitations. The Zero-Eye system is designed to only detect a weapon that is brandished. And the cost of new technology might prove challenging for those school districts already facing budget constraints. Civil liberties advocates also warn. It could incentivize us to blanket our children's schools with surveillance cameras, which is not good for children. Um, there are questions around effectiveness. Will this really stop a shooter, um, especially if it doesn't alert on a gun? Um, so there are practical questions and there are bigger questions about what this kind of technology will mean and where it will fit in in our society. ZeroEye says its platform, currently used by clients in over 20 states, was built with privacy concerns in mind. These cameras already exist. We're not putting any other cameras in. They're not watching real-time cameras. They're just seeing keyframe images. There's a box on the ground and they say, gun or no gun. If they verify that it is in fact a gun, they dispatch it. The hope? alert authorities to a gun before it results in the next all-too-familiar mass shooting. I want to make the world a little bit better place, and this is a very simple tool that's just a step in the right direction. Now, Pamela, security experts tell us that there's no single way to stop this wave of mass shootings that we've seen across the country. Mitigation involves everything from access to weapons to physically securing potential targets. And it's on that point that these former Navy SEALs are hoping to make a difference, using technology to identify a gunman before a shot is ever fired. Let's hope, let's hope it can do that. What a fascinating story. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks. And up next, how the cost of rent is forcing some Americans to make tough choices just to stay alive. Skyrocketing mortgage rates and rent prices are prices rather are squeezing out more and more people and inflation is at a 40-year high, making the price of everyday necessities such as food and gas unmanageable for some. CNN's Omar Jimenez met up with some Americans struggling with the balancing act. Is your room clean? 
For millions of Americans, paying rent means a balancing act. Yeah, I pay it every month. I don't pay it on time. I pay it when I get it. <laughs> Erlene Braggs and her two kids have been in the Chicago apartment for a little more than three years. She says she's making more money than she ever has, but it doesn't feel like it. It basically seems like those little stimulus checks that they gave us, they're basically collecting it all back. <laughs> Sometimes I have to not do one thing or not pay something in the full amount just to make sure something else is covered and then catch back on the, up on that the next round. She's not alone either. Across the United States, inflation is at its highest levels in four decades as rents have hit record highs this year. And mortgages have seen week-to-week increases not seen since the 80s. According to a new report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, more than 10 million renters say they're not caught up on rent as of March, the highest proportion in black communities, where it's over one in five renters. Down from peak pandemic levels, but still higher than all other racial demographics, and as federal rental aid stemming from the pandemic begins to run out, it could get worse. I don't even know how people are surviving in some situations. The inflation has constantly been going up. That hasn't stopped. And this year we've seen it really hit the sky. But, but it, wages have not went up with those. Which means it's not just rent. Marielle Vaughn took public transport almost 15 miles just to get free food. It's crazy. Everything is up high. You got to make a decision whether or not you're going to pay your rent or go buy some food. Rents rising, plus added costs from inflation for many have disrupted what were hard-earned solutions from a pandemic. Seeing the impact that has had on people who we have helped stabilize, it has been a challenge to have to shift that again, right? Your food cost is up, how do we rebudget that? That has been the biggest challenge in addition to the volume, the increase in volume we've seen in the last, in the last few weeks. This is my role. For many families, the challenge comes from keeping up. I want to cry. To fill my tank up is $80. When I first bought my truck, the fill up was $43. Everything is going straight to bills. And like everything is a bill, 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 bill. I mean, I just feel like I'd be robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know. And for Braggs, making ends meet is as much about her audience as it is a payment on the first of the month. Just striving day to day to make sure that they find, let them see how hard they mind work so that they can know that when they get older, you know that, hey, this wasn't no joke. My mom did this all by herself because it's just me and them. So many in her position, especially when it comes to those with kids. According to that same budget and policy priorities report, more than 30% of black renters with kids reported being behind on rent. That's higher by far than any other racial demographic. Pamela? Just awful. Omar Jimenez, such important reporting there. Thank you for bringing that to us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.